Hello and welcome to the Last Push Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to take a break from your biology paper one content and instead we are going to take a look at the first section of your chemistry paper one. So a little bit of a change up um, in the topics today, but what I really think you should do this week is you should still go back and you should listen to that first episode in biology and that second episode in biology one more time to make sure that you're going back and you're revisiting it so you don't lose any of that information in your long-term memory. So the first thing that we're going to take a look at um, is really the basics in chemistry. And a lot of these topics can come up in your chemistry paper one. They can also come up in your chemistry paper two. So it's really, really important that you've got a really good base, a really good foundation for um, for these topics to help you in both your chemistry paper one and your chemistry paper two. So get a pen, get a pencil, get some paper and get yourself ready for this. Okay, and welcome back. Hopefully you got all the equipment that you need in order to listen through this podcast, um, which really is going to start looking at the atomic structure and the periodic table first. So one thing you might want to do is you might want to pause um, this video, you might want to actually get up a periodic table. Now, when you're Googling periodic tables, there are a lot of different versions of periodic tables. So you want to try to really make sure that you've got the one that you'll get during your exam. So the best thing you might want to do is actually put into Google AQA um, chemistry periodic table PDF because that's most likely going to bring you to some links which will get you a more accurate periodic table and the one that you're going to be used to seeing and the one that will be on your actual exam. So in terms of kind of the introduction to this. The periodic table really what it's important for is it actually gives chemists um, a structure and an organized table of all the known chemical elements. Um, and it's ordered in terms of their physical, in terms of their chemical properties, so that there's an actual logical order of this. And historically, the periodic table was developed um, using different models of atomic structure um, because it has really developed throughout time and what people thought of the atom, what people thought of how the element should be arranged has evolved over time and it has changed over time. And uh, really the first thing that you need to know is you need to know about the atoms, you need to know about the first 20 elements on that periodic table, not a lot about them, but you just need to be able to use them to be able to draw them and things like that. And also knowing what a compound is, is, is quite important. So all substances are made up of atoms and they are considered to be um, a smallest part of an element that can exist. But within those atoms, you've also got smaller subatomic particles, sub meaning smaller, subatomic, smaller than the atom, which we will take a look at uh, later on. 
So all of these atoms for each of these elements are represented by a chemical symbol. And the symbol on the periodic table is always going to be one or two letters, which generally symbolize that name of that element. So for example, O represents the atom oxygen, and A represents the atom sodium. And there are about a hundred um, different elements. Uh, maybe a bit more now, but there are about a hundred known elements, and they're all shown in the periodic table. Now, in terms of elements, you need to also know that compounds are actually formed of elements that have gone through a chemical reaction, and compounds are usually two or more elements which are chemically bonded together and they're represented by formulas um, and symbols. So for example, um, some common compounds would be water, and that's represented um, with H2O. You've got carbon dioxide, which is in the air. It's a compound made up of carbon and oxygen, and it is CO2. So um, You've got elements which are going to have one symbol. You could have elements that come as diatoms. So for example, oxygen is a diatom. Di, di always stands for two. So oxygen is a diatom because it is always found as O2. It's not on its own. It's always combined with another oxygen. Same with, for example, chlorine, which the symbol for chlorine is Cl. So chlorine and all group 7 elements, in fact, are diatoms. They can all bind um, with each other. So for example, chlorine is generally usually found as Cl2. So in terms of what you need to know for the exam and to help prep you for that is you need to be able to use the names and symbols of the first 20 elements. So if you look at the number um, of your elements on your periodic table, you should be able to see that they actually go up. Um, so number one would be hydrogen, number two would be helium. Um, and they actually follow a specific order. So you are going to be able to be able to actually have to draw and talk about the first 20. Um, so in terms of the next section um, of your chemistry paper one is we've talked about elements, we've talked about compounds, the next section is knowing about mixtures and a mixtures are two or more elements or they could be compounds that are not chemically combined together. So you can separate out these mixtures um, different ways. For example, filtration, you could filter them out. Crystallization, so you could use thermal heat and energy to turn them into crystals. Distillation is another one. Fractional distillation and chromatography. So those are processes that you can do not to make new substances but to separate out mixtures that already existed. So if you had inky water and you wanted to separate out the ink and separate out just the water then you could do a distillation practical to be able to separate those out. Um, in terms of filtration if you use a filter filter paper 
um, a lot of times in later practicals, for example, when you're talking about crystallization and forming salts, you will have to do a filtering process where you leave behind insoluble solids that were not able to dissolve and you get leftover um, a liquid or a solution which you can then heat up and form crystals, salt crystals specifically, and that's one of the required practicals that does come up later. So filtering and crystallization using heat and using thermal energy to do that. Um, so some of the, one of the main examples really that's used a lot of the times when you're talking about mixtures um, or things like air and salt water, um, seawater, because if you think about it with air, air is a gas all around us, but we can't physically see it. But if you actually think about everything that's in air, I'll just list a few. We've got oxygen, which is O2. We've got carbon dioxide, which is CO2, which is a compound. You've got water vapor, so H2O in a gas form as a vapor form. You've also got things like nitrogen. You might have sulfur dioxide if there's some pollution in the air. You might have some carbon monoxide if there's some more pollution in the air. So there's a lot of different elements and compounds that are found in this one mixture, which is air. So knowing that elements are the simplest form and a group of one or more elements that are chemically combined together forms a compound like carbon dioxide, like H2O water, like sulfur dioxide, methane gas, CH4. Those are all examples of compounds. And then lastly, knowing that mixtures are two or more elements. They could also be compounds which are not chemically combined together. And we have to use different techniques, different separating techniques to separate them out into their own um, distinct elements or compounds if we're trying to separate them out to purify them. Now, the next section, after you've really kind of talked about elements, compounds, and mixtures, the next section is just the development of the, the model of the atom. And this comes up not only in chemistry, but it's also common content in physics. So it could actually come up on either of your physics papers where you might actually be asked to label an atom or to talk about the development of the atom over time. So lots of experimental evidence have led to a scientific model um, the one we have now was replaced by previous ones. There's lots of history that actually shows lots of scientists who had lots of ideas about the atom. And before the electron was discovered, which is a small negative charged subatomic particle on the atom, the electron was actually discovered later on. And before it was discovered, the atom was actually thought to be tiny spheres that could not be divided at all, which now is completely untrue. And we've been able to discover that actually the atom has got different parts of it and electrons actually can move from one atom to another atom or one element from another element with different types of bonding. So the discover of the actual electron itself led to 
a model which is called the plum pudding model of the atom. And the plum pudding model is one that you're often asked to describe or you're asked to talk about a diagram that they might have with that. And it's called the plum pudding model. And a lot of diagrams, if you actually pause it right now, if you get a diagram up, a lot of diagrams have it shown almost looking like a chocolate chip cookie. Um, because a lot of the earlier diagrams made it actually look like this. So it's thought to have been a ball of positive charge and it's got negative electrons embedded in it. So if you think about a diagram of a chocolate chip cookie, your cookie part, the actual circle itself, would be the positively charged aspect of the atom. And all of the chocolate chips would actually be the negative electrons that were embedded in it. So the overall thought of the plum pudding was that it was a circular positive sphere with negatively charged electrons scattered throughout it. Um, this later became known that this was incorrect and one of the reasons for that is because of an alpha particle scattering experiment. And it's really, really hard to describe this actual experiment in itself. So what I suggest you do is I suggest you actually pause the video and you actually get up a picture of the alpha particle scattering experiment. So what it was is they developed a machine that would actually fire alpha particles at um, different atoms, at gold foil specifically. That's the first one that they started looking at. And what they realized and what they concluded from this is that the mass of the atom is concentrated in the center. So the heaviest part of the atom itself is, is in the nucleus, is in the center. And what they also realized when they shot those alpha particles out is that some of the alpha particles got deflected away from what appeared to be a center of mass. And they were able to draw the conclusion that the nucleus was actually charged. And the nucleus itself, we now know, is positively charged. So if you think about um, this idea of the atom and what you've actually started learning at quite a young age, you would have talked about the nucleus being the center of the atom. And inside the center of the atom, you've got protons, which are positively charged, and neutrons, which have a neutral charge or no charge. So with those two subatomic particles inside the nucleus, the center of the atom, the overall charge of the nucleus, the middle part of the atom, actually is positive. So when alpha particles, which also are positively charged, are actually fired towards a nucleus which is positively charged, they are able to deflect um, and reflect off of that because two similarly charged things will, um, will not be attracted to each other. In fact, they'll be repelled. So that's the particle scattering experiment with the gold foil. And there are lots of different YouTube videos on this. There's lots of information on BBC Bite Size. Um, and you guys can read up a little bit more if you're more interested in it. And from this experiment, you've actually got the nuclear model. And that nuclear model is the model that replaces the plum pudding model. 
and it was also adapted as well. Um, only slightly though. So Neil Bohr, um, he adapted the nuclear model and he suggested that electrons orbit the nucleus at specific distances. And he did a lot of different practicals and experiments to test this theory, which ended up being um, quite true. Um, so in terms of those electrons, they orbit on shells around the nucleus. And what you need to be able to know is that um, at GCSE level, you need to be able to know that two electrons can go on the first shell. Eight can fill up the second shell. And again, eight can fill up the third shell. But when you go into more advanced chemistry, you'll learn things about different orbitals and different types of shells like P and S shells. Um, and you go into a lot more detail with that. But at GCSE level, you really, really just need to know that we've got our three subatomic particles, protons, neutrons, and electrons. The protons and neutrons are found in the nucleus. Protons have got a positive charge. Neutrons have got no charge or a neutral charge. And then those electrons are going to orbit the nucleus on energy levels or shells is what they're called. Energy levels and shells. Two on the first, eight on the second, eight on the third. And later experiments um, after Neil Bohr, um, they actually found out that there's a positive charge in the nucleus. Um, and so from that, they were able to name the proton. So originally they knew the nucleus um, had to be charged, but they didn't have a name for that. So later on, they after Neil Bohr suggested that electrons were outside the nucleus orbiting around later experiments um, led to the naming of the proton and they have got a positive charge was what was written down in terms of the history of the development. And then the next um, scientist to kind of really make a huge discovery um, and helped provide more insight to the periodic table was um, the work that James Chadwick did. And what he did is he did lots of different experimental studies on finding out the neutrons. And he found out that there were neutrons within the nucleus. Um, this was about 20 years after the nucleus became scientifically accepted. So it took a long time for people to really start um, being on board with these scientists' ideas. So originally they knew that there was a center of mass and they knew that it was positively charged because when they shot those alpha particles, they would deflect or reflect. And then we had the discovery of the electron, um, which was Neil Bohr. Then later the proton was named to be found within the nucleus. And after that, James Chadwick um, released information that neutrons were also within the nucleus. Um, so really those are, that's kind of the development of the periodic table um, in terms of knowing the scientists involved and knowing how, how it developed over time. And the modern periodic table, um, we can give credit to Mendeleev because Mendeleev's periodic table is the newest um, and most accepted periodic table. 
And there were a lot of problems with the original periodic table. A lot of it was incomplete. Um, some of the elements were placed in what we now would say is an inappropriate placement because of their atomic weights. So what Mendeleev did is he built a periodic table, but he left gaps. He left gaps for some of the elements that were not discovered yet. Um, and he ordered it based on the atomic weights of those elements. So Mendeleev predicted that there would be new elements being found, and that's why he left um, gas, uh, he left spaces and gaps in this periodic table. So Mendeleev, um, we're following his, his is the new, newest, um, and the most modern periodic table. And it's, it's all designed and it's all based off the atomic weights of those elements. So if we take a look now at kind of in terms of the periodic table and some of those different groupings in the periodic table, of elements is they are they are arranged in order of their atomic proton number um, they're arranged in terms of their similar properties all the columns going down are known as groups so if you're looking at a picture in front of you right now if you got that up when we first talked about it you should have a group number one and it should be going down um, with lithium at the top and then you've got group number two, and if you follow it along, you should be over on the right-hand side. If you're on the farthest right-hand side, if you've got a group zero, or if you're looking at an older periodic table, it'll say group eight, but it is now known as group zero, then group seven, and so on and so forth. And then you've also got rows, which are called periods. Um... And elements in the same groups in the periodic table have the same number of electrons on their outer shell. And this all gives them a similar chemical property. So, for example, you're able to, to be able to draw these based off of knowing that information and knowing that they all have some sort of similar reactivity, um, but the reactivity changes as you go up or down those groups. So for example, group one, group one, if you're looking at your periodic table, those are going to be called the alkali metals. And they're all silver, they're all shiny. Um, if you're actually looking at them and cutting them, um, they actually get softer as you go down the periodic table. And all of these elements in the group one, all of these alkali metals, they all have some sort of reaction with oxygen, chlorine, and water. And you can find lots of YouTube videos that kind of show this, these reactions. And you need to be able to describe how these reactions work. So I highly, highly suggest that you actually take a look at um, some videos of that after this is done playing, just so you can kind of see a visual on that. But in terms of the... Um, you most likely saw uh, your teacher put these group one alkali metals into water because that's a pretty typical demonstration that most teachers will actually show their classes. So if you put a small piece of these alkali metals into water, the ones at the top of the periodic table like lithium, 
they will have less of a reaction than the ones down at the bottom of the periodic table, like cesium and francium, because they are the most reactive. Um, and it all depends on the outer shell of the electrons. So the trend is, is that group one alkaline metals get more reactive going down, and it's because those electrons are further away from the nucleus and they're able to have a more violent, more volatile reaction um, where they actually lose their outermost electrons. And that's usually why it's more reactive going down with the group one alkali metals. So the reaction that you will see when you put these in water is they will it will get more reactive going down. So the first reactions, you'll just see that small piece of silver metal, it will disappear. There might be a little tiny bit of, of smoke. Um, it will fizz around on the top of the water. And then as you go down, there actually will be some fire, some sparks. And if you look at the very bottom ones, you don't have those in schools because they are so reactive that they will actually cause an explosion in the moisture within the air. So those ones themselves, you can't actually get in a school lab. So you're most likely only testing the first few. So lithium, sodium, potassium, usually you test the first three. So that's a group one alkali metals. And then if you take a look at group seven, because that's the next one that you need to know a little bit about. Group seven, they are named halogens. Um, they all have similar reactions because they all have seven electrons in their outer shell. They are non-metals and they usually consist of molecules made of pairs. So group seven, we said earlier, they're diatomic. So they usually come in groups of pairs. So chlorine was one of them, for example, chlorine, bromine. There's lots of other ones, but they all come in groups of two. Um, and the main thing is that you need to be able to know that these non-metals will react with metals um, and there'll be a bonding with those so that they've got a full outer shell. And their reactivity is the complete opposite from group one. The most reactive is going to be at the top of the periodic table and the least reactive is at the bottom of the periodic table. Um, and the further you go down group seven, the elements are higher in their mass, they're higher in their melting point, they're higher in the boiling point, so you need more energy um, to be able to melt and boil them, some more thermal energy. Um, and there also are things like displacement reactions, which you can take a look at with halogens. And a displacement reaction is something that you might be asked to describe. And it is if you've got a more reactive group seven element, it will displace the less reactive group seven element. And I highly suggest that you guys take a look at um, Malsbury Science because they most likely have got a displacement reaction video that you can watch for that one. The last group that you really need to know a lot about is group zero. It used to be called group eight, um, but it's no longer called group eight. It's called group zero because it has got a full outer shell. 
but with helium, helium is a full outer shell of two, whereas neon has a full outer shell of eight in its outermost shell. So group zero is now what it is known as, and it is called the noble gases. They are all non-metals, and they're extremely unreactive because they have got a full outer shell. So that's the major thing that you need to know about group zero. The very last thing that you might be asked to do is describe the middle section of the periodic table. And the middle section of the periodic table is called the transition metals. So if you take a look at a labeled periodic table, you'll most likely be able to see that. So that's the periodic table and kind of the development of the periodic table, the groups and things around that. Now, before we move on to the more challenging aspects of chemistry, you really need to make sure that we're 100% positive on the electrical charges of the subatomic particles, the masses of the subatomic particles, and just some more keywords like isotopes, ions, and things like that. So we're going to take a look at that. But first thing I'd like you guys to do is get a little diagram of a labeled atom. You should be able to find that quite easily if you take a little pause and Google that. So do that please and then we'll get right back to it. Okay, hopefully you guys have got your diagram up and you had a little break and you're ready to go back through the relative charges, the mass, what are ions, what are isotopes, so that we can get on to the more challenging concepts in chemistry a little bit later on. So in terms of your three subatomic particles, protons, neutrons, and electrons, we've already discussed them. We've already discussed who discovered them, how they were discovered, and you need to be able to on chemistry paper one, potentially on chemistry paper two as well, and even sometimes on your physics papers, know some of the, the basic information about them. So you need to know that the charge of a proton is positive, the charge of a neutron is neutral or negative, and the charge of an electron is negative. So I'm going to repeat that because I kind of morphed neutron into electron. So the protons are positively charged. The neutrons are neutral or have no charge. And the electrons are negatively charged. So hopefully you've got all that down now. Um, and then you can really start thinking about, okay, well, if you have got an atom it will have the same amount of protons and the same amount of electrons. So the actual overall electrical charge of an atom is zero, is neutral, because you've always got with an atom the same amount of protons as electrons. So that's really, really important to remember because this can and this does change often. So that's when we're talking about atoms. When you're talking about ions, the definition for an ion is an atom that has lost or gained an electron. So ions have got an overall no electrical charge. Ions have got an electrical charge because if an ion 
um, if an atom has gained an electron, it is becoming more negative. It is getting, it is gaining subatomic particles that actually have a negative charge. So if an atom gains an electron, it will now have an overall charge of negative. But if an atom loses an electron, it will be losing that negative subatomic particle. So it will becoming, it will actually be becoming more positive. So it will have an overall electrical charge, which is positive. So that key definition, knowing what an ion is, is really, really important because there's a whole section about ionic bonding and you need to be able to know that. Um, so in terms of the sizes and the mass of the atom, there's a really, really important um, piece of information that a lot of times students forget. And it's knowing these, the, I'm about to say them, the two pieces of information is knowing the size of the radius um, and knowing the radius of the nucleus. Because occasionally this comes up as a multiple choice question, so you do need to know it. So atoms are really, really small and they have a radius of about 0.1 nanometers. Um, and if you put that into meters, it's 1 times 10 to the minus 10 meters. So extremely, extremely small. It does sometimes come up as a multiple choice question. What also comes up as a multiple choice question a lot is the radius of the nucleus. And the radius of the nucleus has been discovered to be approximately 1 times 10 to the minus 14 meters. So I'll say that one more time so you can jot that down. 1 times 10 to the negative 14 meters. So those radiuses are quite important to try to remember because they do come up a lot. The other thing that very frequently comes up is the actual size of the relative mass um, in terms of the subatomic particles. So the relative mass of a proton is 1, the relative mass of a neutron is 1, and the relative mass of an electron is very small. So if you are looking at the, um, the sizes, that's why we always talk about how the nucleus um, takes up most of the mass because electrons are considered to be very, very small, um, almost negligible, in fact. So that's why the nucleus takes up most of the mass. Now, when you're looking at your periodic table, you're going to have to be able to use that to be able to, in terms of an atom, say the number of protons, the number of neutrons, or the number of electrons according to the atomic number and according to the atomic mass. So if we take sodium, for example, if you find sodium, the mass number is 23 and the atomic number is 11. So you'd be able to have to figure out from that how many protons there are, how many neutrons there are, how many electrons there are. It's quite an easy thing to do. You just need to try to remember it. So the atomic number of an atom will represent the number of protons. So in this case, with sodium, it'll be 11. And then we know that an atom overall has a charge of zero, an overall charge of zero. So we know if there's 11 protons, there must be 11 electrons. So the atomic number for an atom will also be, you can use the 11 for sodium, for protons, and for electrons. Now to find the number of neutrons, you need to take the mass number away from the atomic number because the mass number represents the total number of protons and neutrons. 
So to figure out the number of neutrons, we need to take away that total number, subtract it by the number of protons. So 23 represents the number of protons and neutrons. So we need to subtract it by just the number of protons, which is 11, meaning that we'll have 12 left over, and that is the number of neutrons in a sodium atom. So in terms of that's really kind of how we use the periodic table and how we can manipulate the periodic table when answering questions about it. The last definition that we really need to go over is what is an isotope. So an isotope is the atom of a same element which has got a different number of neutrons and the same number of protons. So again, if we're looking at sodium, sodium typically generally is 23 for the mass number, the atomic number is 11. But if we had an isotope of sodium, for example, it could be uh, 24 and 11, that would mean that there's one additional neutron in that sodium isotope, okay? So oftentimes they will give you two or three and they'll ask you kind of just to describe it. So we've gone through the periodic table, we've gone through the development of it, we've gone through the different subatomic particles, the definition of an ion, how to figure out the number of protons, neutrons, and electrons, and also what an isotope is. One of the other things that you need to be able to do is you need to be able to draw the electronic structure. Um, of the first 20 elements is realistically what they could ask you to draw. They could draw you any, ask you to draw any from the first 20. So what you need to be able to do is you need to be able to look at that bottom atomic number on the periodic table and you need to be able to divide it up into the energy levels or the shells. So remembering two will always go on the first, then eight can go on the second, then eight can go on the third. And how I always draw them as little X's or little tiny dots. Um, doesn't really matter. You'll be awarded marks for either or. Um, so if you do little tiny X's, your first energy shell should have two. Then your second energy shell should have, it can have a total of eight. So for example, if it was lithium, which is seven Li3, if you find that in your group one, lithium's in group one, it should have one electron instead of shell. The bottom atomic number is three, so it would have two electrons in the first shell, and then would have one leftover electron in the second shell. So if you actually take some time to draw all 20 out, I think that is a very, very, very good use of your time because the more confident you are with knowing these diagrams, these electronic structures, um, the better prepared you'll be because they are really nice, quick, simple marks. Now, a lot of people ask me kind of where the placement of those electrons in terms of crosses or dots should go. And I personally always try to do it in terms of, think about it like a compass, north, east, south, west. So usually those electrons come in groups of two. Um, so on your first shell, you could do it as north and south, or you could do it as east and west. So a dot up top, a dot down below. And then if you're looking at your second shell, 
if um, it has got a full outer shell, so if we're looking at neon, which the atomic number is 10, you would have two in the first shell, and then your second shell for neon would be full. So you'd have two up kind of where the north of a compass is, two where east of a compass is, two where south of a compass is, and two where west of a compass is, so that you kind of got those groupings. So what I highly, highly suggest you do is you actually end um, with actually taking a look and drawing all 20 of these out. So if you Google first 20 elements of the periodic table worksheet, loads of um, potential things will pop up for you and you guys could actually practice doing that. So that's the first part of your chemistry paper one. It really is kind of just the knowledge and the background basis of how the periodic table was discovered, knowing the difference between elements, compounds, and mixtures, knowing everything you can about your atom and the structure of it. So the nucleus is the center filled with positively charged protons, neutral charged, um, neutrally charged neutrons, and then you've got your shells or your energy levels, which have got your negatively charged electrons on the outside, which are extremely, extremely small. Knowing about that gold foil uh, scattering experiment, that almost always comes up on either the chemistry or the physics exam, because the plum pudding model is something that was very, very crucial in the development and understanding of the atomic structure. And then knowing the properties of your group one alkali metals, the properties of your group seven halogens, and the fact that your group zero noble gases are unreactive, they've all got a full outer shell, is also really, really important. And then the only other thing really is um, knowing those two definitions that we talked about, ions, so an atom that has lost or gained an electron, making it either positively charged or negatively charged. And the last definition we took a look at was isotopes, which is the same element which has a different number of neutrons, so either more neutrons or less neutrons, but the same number of protons, the same atomic number. So the last thing that you really should do is take a look at some property videos uh, for group one, alkali metals, displacement videos for group seven, halogens, and try drawing your first 20 elements. And then what we'll do later on in the week is we'll take a look at the second part of your chemistry paper one before going back and doing some my more biology or some physics. So get out there, get revising, try to stay positive. Mm -hmm.